0: Remember the 90s, when MTV still played music videos, when people still bought physical copies of albums, and when legendary musicians like Kurt Cobain and Dimebag Daryl still walked the earth? Well, now you can once again relive that decade every week on KBGA, because your favorite 90s radio show, Sounds Like Teen Spirit, is back and better than ever. It's still the best show on KBGA to hear artists like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Sublime, Megadeth, Primus, and more. Again, that's Sounds Like Teen Spirit, now on Sundays from 8 to 10 p.m., only on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. Lips kicking off this program with talking about the smiling death porn immortality blues, (Parentheses: everyone wants to live forever, off their 1992 album, Hit to Death in the Future Head. Welcome to the award-winning Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I'm your swoon-worthy host, Ian. This episode features music from the likes of Depeche Mode, The Jesus Lizard, Skunk Anansi, Deftones. PAW, Alkaline Trio, The Roots, Mother Love Bone, Kitty, and R.E.M. Plus, I'm going to be reviewing and playing two songs off the new Wilco double album, Cruel Country, released on May 27th, and one apiece from Radiohead offshoot The Smiles debut, A Light for Attracting Attention, released on May 13th, and the new Guar album, The New Dark Ages, released on June 3rd. I'll start with Guar. With the New Dark Ages, Guar have just put out their second album since the 2014 overdose death of founder and original frontman Dave Brockie, and, well, the growing pains are still there. In fairness, continuing Guar without the presence of Odorous Urungus was always going to be a tricky proposition, and the way the band went about it, by bringing back a classic former member as a brand new monster slash frontman, was probably the best approach they could have taken. Michael Bishop was the original portrayer of bassist Beefcake the Mighty, and he also occasionally sang lead vocals during that initial tenure with the band, which lasted from 1987 through 1993, and was followed by another from 98 through 99. Now he's back as new front thing Blothar, and he's got the unenviable task of filling the gargantuan, no doubt pungent shoes left behind by Brocky's Urungus. Not only was Brocky the voice and face of Guar for roughly their first 30 years, but he was also practically the singular visionary behind Guar, having the idea to have his old punk band Death Piggy open for themselves as a fictional band in monster suits, which eventually outshined the real band. Stepping in for someone as inexorably linked to the brand as Dave Brocky is doable, but requires a deft touch. The ideal candidate wouldn't try to emulate Brocky's presence, but rather honor it by crafting a new persona distinct from the one projected by Odorous Urungus, yet still true to the anarchic and macabre spirit of Guar. Bishop certainly has sufficient pedigree to attempt to fill those shoes, and he took the correct approach in coming up with the original entity Blothar, but two albums into his tenure as front thing, it seems Bishop is still trying to find his Guar voice. Now from a purely vocal standpoint, he sounds fine. His singing style is more of a hair metal wail as opposed to Brockie's thrash metal bark, and it's ultimately well matched with the band. What I'm really mainly referring to is his lyrics. Brockie is remembered about as much for his barking vocals as he is for the supremely profane and grotesque strings of words he was often barking. It was clear to any and all listeners that he gleefully embodied the role of a literal monster. It's not a stretch to say he lost himself in it. But whenever Michael Bishop unloads the vulgarity on The New Dark Ages, something's off. It seems almost as though he's doing it out of obligation to fan expectations of Guar, to deliver the goods, so to speak, as opposed to it coming from a more natural and organic place within him. I feel like Bishop was trying on different hats throughout the album, as he ends up going to a number of different places lyrically. While a few songs are devoted to Guar's signature stomach-churning imagery, some of them go after real-world politics. The album's titular opening track, New Dark Age, sufficiently demonstrates that the title is referring to the past several years of American life following the rise of Donald Trump. And other songs such as Blood Libel, "Motherfucking Liar, and Completely Fucked" similarly project anti-Trump sentiment. For the record, folks, I'm all in favor of more bands, quote, getting political, because in this DJ's personal opinion, what's going on in America right now is not okay. But Guar's approach to it on the new Dark Ages is clumsy and uncharacteristic of the band. I recall an instance in the early days of lockdown more than two years ago when Trump suggested maybe consuming bleach to stave off COVID-19, and Guar responded with a PSA from drummer Jizmac Degusha, eagerly seconding the president's suggestion. He encouraged all humans to consume bleach, professing that the band members do it all the time, and outlining all of their favorite ways to get it inside them, all with an underlying wink and smile reminding everyone that Guar's ultimate goal is the complete eradication of humankind. And I remember thinking, yes, that is the form that Guar's political commentary should take, with a layer of ironic detachment in likening the thoughts and actions of the former president with those of a band of humanity-devouring monsters. However, much of the political lyrics on The New Dark Ages feel too direct, like they're coming less from Guar the monsters than from Guar the real people behind them, and that doesn't quite sit right with me. I thought Bishop's performance as Blothar was at its best when his lyrics reflected inward on Guar's own lore and universe, which is basically just ours, but with the addition of more worlds and creatures. I'm talking about songs like The Cutter, which is about a monster who don't hurt herself, she hurts you, mother cuffer, and is portrayed in song by guest vocalist Lizzie Hale, as well as Ratcatcher, which tells of an alien exterminator who abducts people's children as collateral for his services. Musically speaking, Guar is in fine shape on the new Dark Ages, with the band's style demonstrating about as much frenzied variance as the lyrical themes. There are thrashier numbers like Berserker Mode and The Cutter, brutal slow burners like Unto the Breach and Rise Again, and 80s hard rock and hair metal style bangers befitting of Bishop's voice like Ratcatcher and Completely Out. And then there's the Death Whistle Suite, which refers to the last three tracks on this sprawling 15-track album, joined together at the hip and varying wildly in length and composition. This three-song suite shifts through phases that include ambient noise, sparse instrumentals, classic-style raging, and electro-tinged jam sessions that one would be far more likely to associate with Battles or Soundtripe Sector 9 than Guar if they happened to walk into a room where they were playing. Ultimately, The New Dark Ages is a hodgepodge of ideas, and at an hour and six minutes in length, it gets to be a bit unwieldy, but there's enough interesting stuff here for me to encourage Michael Bishop to keep working on his Guar voice. Maybe he'll get it exactly right on the next go-around. Alright, I felt this next song was one of Bishop's most successful attempts at finding said voice, and it also happens to be among the most musically interesting songs on the album. This one's called Venom of the Platypus. Enjoy!
1: portion of KBGA is brought to you by Imagination Brewing Company. By supporting over 1,700 community events in its educational center, Imagination Brews handcrafted beer to make a positive impact on Missoula and beyond. For more information about what's on tap, weekly live music offerings, or to reserve the center, call 406-926-1251 or visit imaginationbrewing.com.
2: Idaho Idaho. and you're you're listening listening to to KBGA KBGA, Missoula 89.9 FM
3: Most exciting thing I do Hang halfway out a third floor window Maybe throw the cigarettes down And maybe I'll catch fire Something warm to hold me Something pure to burn away the dark I can't look at anyone They've seen this face a thousand times
0: Album *Music for the Masses*. On this episode of *Sounds Like Teen Spirit*, we mourn the loss of Depeche Mode keyboardist Andy Fletcher, A.K.A. Fletch, who passed away in his England home on May 26th at the age of 60. No cause of death has been made official yet, but an anonymous source close to the band has claimed it to be of natural causes. Andy Fletcher co-founded Depeche Mode in 1980 with Vince Clark after the duo's previous band, No Romance in China, fell apart. Martin Gore and Dave Gahan joined later that year, rounding out the original lineup, though Clark ended up leaving in 1981 and was replaced by Alan Wilder. Fletcher served in the band continuously over the next four decades, all the way up until his death. Initially, he was the bassist, but after the band quickly veered towards a more synth-based sound inspired by orchestral maneuvers in the dark, he became their primary keyboardist instead. Fletcher's overall role within Depeche Mode was ambiguous and often disputed. In the 1989 Depeche Mode documentary 101, he famously joked that Martin's the songwriter, Alan's the good musician, Dave's the vocalist, and I bum around. Fletcher was the only member of Depeche Mode without any songwriting credits, and he rarely sang in concert, to the point where the band eventually stopped including a mic for him in their stage setups. He usually just sat in the back and could have easily been mistaken for a random touring member. However, he was considerably more involved in the band's business affairs, often serving as its de facto manager and spokesperson. He was also perceived to be the glue holding Depeche Mode together all these years, sometimes finding himself in the role of band therapist. He once saved the band from a breakup in 2000 after mediating an ugly dispute between Gahan and Gore. Furthermore, as the primary keyboardist in such a synth-driven band as Depeche Mode, it can be argued that he was a substantial contributor to the band's overall sound, even if he had no hand in writing the parts he was playing. Fletcher recorded on all 14 Depeche Mode albums released to date, the most recent of which was 2017's Spirit. As for the next album, Gahan revealed in an October 2021 interview with NME that he and Gore, now the only two members left in Depeche Mode after operating as a trio with Fletcher since 1995, have both begun writing new material, and they were hoping to get together in the studio sometime this year to begin recording. It's currently unknown how Fletcher's death may impact those rudimentary plans, but considering that recording has yet to commence and that Fletcher never participated in the band's songwriting, it's all but certain that he will have no presence on the next album, whatever form that may take and whenever it ends up getting released. The only exceptions would be if his death inspires any lyrics on the album, or if the whole thing is dedicated to his memory, which are both plausible. Of course, that's all assuming the band even lasts long enough to finish another album, considering my earlier remark about Fletcher being the glue. Outside of Depeche Mode, Andy Fletcher founded the short-lived record label Toast Hawaii in 2002 as a division of Depeche Mode's label Mute Records, and he was heavily involved in the activities of his first client, an all-female electronic group named, uh, Client. He sometimes toured as a DJ during his downtime, often incorporating exclusive Depeche Mode remixes into his sets, and he was also a highly skilled chess player considered by many to be unbeatable. Hopefully he was able to take an unblemished win record into the grave with him. Rest in peace, Fletch. Anyway, before Depeche Mode, I played Grind by Alison Chains, off their 1995 self-titled. Maybe I'll Catch Fire by Alkaline Trio, off their 2000 album of the same name. My Big Mouth by Oasis, off their 1997 album Be Here Now. Sweet Sally Brown by Paw, off their 1995 album Death to Traitors. And All I Want by Skunkanancy, off their 1996 album Stoosh. Once again, you're listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash SLTS2, and to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org slash teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from the new Wilco double album, Cruel Country. Wilco frontman Jeff Tweedy announced the band's latest album with a statement that reads, I think there's been an assumption over the years that Wilco is some sort of country band. There's a lot of evidence to support that way of thinking about our band, because there have been elements of country music in everything we've ever done. But to be honest, we've never been particularly comfortable with accepting that definition of the music we make. With this album, though, I'll tell you what, Wilco is digging in and calling it country. Depending on your personal affiliation with country music, that statement could very well be seen as a warning, or even a threat. Me, I've maintained a sort of flimsy relationship with country over the years. As a lifelong rocker, country music has always struck me as, uh, well, rather lame by comparison. Plus, nowadays the sound of country often just reminds me of Trump and his support base, and that's something I could certainly do with less of in my life. However, as I've come to realize, country is about as vast a category of music as rock and roll, boasting a comparable amount of variations in subgenres, and it's really only a couple specific flavors of country that I take umbrage with. The rest of it's just fine by me, and some of it, dare I say, I actually love. As last year's new Jerry Cantrell album, Brighton, has proven, I'm especially fond of country combined with different styles of rock, and the new Wilco double album, Cruel Country, happens to be another solid example of such. Only in this case, instead of grunge country, it's indie country. Really, reimagining Wilco as a country band was no stretch, as like Jeff Tweedy already said, Wilco have always incorporated elements of country in their music. However, although Cruel Country is undoubtedly the countryest that Wilco's ever been, the album barely registered as country to me while I was listening to it. I feel that twangy indie rock is a more accurate summation, and as a matter of fact, the album feels like a natural extension of the sound explored on the previous Wilco album, 2019's Ode to Joy. Also, Tweedy's liberal perspective colors a lot of the lyrics on Cruel Country, and that sort of thing is pretty jarring to hear amid country music. In the same statement I quoted from earlier, Tweedy muses that country has always been the ideal place to comment on what most troubles my mind, which for more than a little while now has been the country where I was born, these United States. And because it is the country that I love, and because it's country music that I love, I feel a responsibility to investigate their mirrored, problematic natures. To that end, the line, I love my country, stupid and cruel, from Cruel Country's title track, functions as a succinctly appropriate thesis for the entire album. How often do you hear country songs with lyrics like that? This album may be country of a certain persuasion, but it sure ain't the kind you'd expect to hear on, say, KISS FM, and coming from Wilco, I don't think I'd have it any other way. For the record, folks, I consider there to be two main classifications of studio albums. The first is what I like to refer to as song collections, and that's more or less exactly as it sounds. Collections of like-minded songs developed around the same time as one another, seemingly without much deliberation over their sequencing. Typically, the songs on these albums work well individually, but when experienced together as a cover-to-cover listen, the laws of repetition and diminishing returns tend to work against them. The other main type of album is what I call cohesive bodies, and these are essentially the inverse of song collections. The tracks on these albums are more codependent, sagging into and playing off each other in such a way that they are definitively meant to be heard cover to cover, whereas alone they tend to pack less of a punch. A good example of this album type is the debut from Radiohead Offshoot The Smile that I'm reviewing within the next hour, foreshadowing alert. The best albums, in my opinion, are the ones adept at playing both sides. Cruel Country, however, falls squarely into the former category. With twenty-one songs totaling roughly seventy-seven minutes in length, it's definitely a marathon listen, and in that context relatively few of those songs made much of an impression on me. However, after later experiencing each song as a standalone, I found a healthy majority of them to be worthwhile. Overall, I'd say Cruel Country has a higher batting average than 2019's Ode to Joy, which is doubly impressive when you consider it has far more opportunities at bat. I was ultimately pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed Wilco's Country album, though I really don't think I needed two discs worth of it. Nonetheless, I'm sure Wilco fans in general will be highly receptive to Cruel Country, for after all, Country Wilco and Wilco are practically one and the same. Alright, because it's a double album, and because my review agenda is relatively light this week, I decided I'm going to be doing two songs from Cruel Country for ya, instead of the usual one. This next song somewhat reminds me of the Ode to Joy single, Everyone Hides. It's called, Mystery Binds. Enjoy! (laughs)
4: where I must have been Others saw a hovering ring A dream retrieved from a common spring The very same source taking my sorrow At once awakened stone, yet all I've loved, I've loved alone, silver craft, a stormy dawn, a wretched raft of life is drawn, every ounce of wasted will, more mystery binds me still. the mountain All the coins From every fountain
1: Jake the Snake Roberts.
3: Who gives a damn about those call letters? KBGA, KGBA, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know where the music's at, don't you? Stupid. <laughs>
1: Ladies and gentlemen, watch it yet, again yet,
4: Is an 80s
3: metal hair band thinks they are. Here I am. You like a hurricane. College radio is 89.9 FM. KBGA. Missoula.
0: with Gears of War, off their 2007 album United Abominations. Megadeth recently announced a full-time replacement for founding bassist David Ellefson in the wake of his 2021 firing over a sex scandal. A couple episodes ago, I reported that Testament bassist Steve DiGiorgio recorded over Ellefson's bass parts on the upcoming album The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead, and that former Megadeth bassist James Lomenzo had been filling in on tour, and ultimately, Ellefson's replacement is one of those two. The latter. The band broke the news of Lomenzo's return with a statement in which frontman Dave Mustaine said, "...I am thrilled to welcome back James to the Megadeth family." James rejoined The Fold as the touring bassist, and it's been a blast having him back. We thought, let's make it permanent. James Lomenzo previously served as Megadeth's bassist from the mid to late 2000s. He first joined in 2006 and played on two of the band's albums, 2007's United Abominations and 2009's Endgame, the latter of which I personally consider to be among Megadeth's top three. He departed in early 2010, paving the way for Ellefson to return to his old post, so yes, it appears he is now bookending Ellefson's second tenure in the band. For much of the decade plus since his initial exit from Megadeth, Lomenzo was in the solo band of CCR frontman John Fogarty, with whom he had to make special arrangements in order to temporarily go off and help his former band on the road. He got Fogarty's blessing, of course, but now that he's been invited to rejoin Megadeth full-time, it's unclear whether he and Fogarty are still involved. In other Megadeth news, it looks like the release date for The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead has been bumped yet again. During Megadeth's set at the UK's 2022 Download Festival last weekend, Mustaine allegedly told the crowd that the album would now be coming in September after previously being given a release date of July 8th. Well, I suspected that date wasn't going to happen as mid-June approached, and I noticed that we still had yet to receive the lead single, track listing, and album art. In other words, the stuff that makes an upcoming album feel real. Folks, I'm pretty sure I've reported on delays for this particular Megadeth album at least four times now. I guess now that the absurdly long-awaited Fifth Tool album finally came out in 2019, the new Megadeth album has essentially taken its place as musical vaporware. I've decided something's gotta give, so I'm just gonna stop talking about the sick, the dying, and the dead until after it finally becomes this finished, tangible thing that I can review, which I'm hoping won't be any later than September. Anyway, before Megadeth, I played The Man Who Broke His Own Heart by Everclear off their 2015 album Black is the New Black, Adrenaline by The Roots off their 1999 album Things Fall Apart, Driver 8 by R.E.M. off their 1985 album, Fables of the Reconstruction, President Forever by Local H. off their 2003 EP, the No Fun EP, and Lifter by the Deftones off their 1995 album, Adrenaline. You're still listening to Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. To like this show on Facebook, go to facebook.com SLTS2, and to hear this and other episodes of the program after the broadcast, go to kbga.org teen-spirit. Alright, next I'm going to review and play a song from Radiohead offshoot The Smiles debut album, A Light for Attracting Attention. Being a Radiohead fan can at times be a trying experience. In the wake of their relatively productive earlier years, the band has sort of fallen by the wayside as its individual members are kept occupied by increasingly ambitious side ventures. Of course, you can't fault the Radiohead guys for being so in demand, and you know they've got to be absolutely relishing all the opportunities heading their way, but still, one sometimes wishes they'd just cock their heads to the left every so often, and notice all the rabid fans in their peripheral clamoring for a follow-up to their 2016 album, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Seriously guys, just the occasional word or two on its development, provided that's happening at all, would be a good start. However, it seems like the members involved in latest Radiohead offshoot The Smile have kept the band's justifiably impatient fandom in mind, at least. Because their 2022 debut, A Light for Attracting Attention, plays uncannily like the mythical 10th Radiohead album we're otherwise still probably a ways away from getting. In case you missed my initial overview of them in the last episode, The Smile is a brand new supergroup that pairs Radiohead frontman Tom York and guitarist Johnny Greenwood with jazz drummer Tom Skinner of the band Sons of Kemet. Naturally, with the band's genetic makeup comprised two-thirds of Radiohead members, who play nearly all non-percussive instruments and presumably hog the lion's share of creative control as well, the smiles sound almost exactly like Radiohead, even before you factor in York's signature angelic warbling on top of it all. Not only that, but the sound of their debut album more or less feels like a logical progression from where Radiohead left off with a moon-shaped pool. However, simply classifying the music as More Radiohead would ultimately be selling it short, as there are some notable distinctions between The Smile and its mother band. One of those would be The Smile's incorporation of synth elements. Sure, Radiohead used synth all the time, but they generally apply it with a more subtle touch, such as for underscoring a song with warm tones of ambiance. While there's plenty of that to go around on The Smile's debut, that's not the synth I'm talking about. I'm talking about big 80s-style synthesizers, the kind that are loud, melodic, and pronounced, yet at the same time moody and evocative. In other words, the kind you'd be far more likely to hear scoring an episode of Stranger Things than propping up a Radiohead album. This particular brand of synth can be heard throughout a light for attracting attention, and is especially prominent on tracks like Thin Thing and Waving a White Flag, which are both album standouts. The other notable distinction comes from the contributions of The Smile's lone Radiohead outsider, Tom Skinner. Skinner's percussive style, seemingly unaltered here from how it sounds in Sons of Kemet, is markedly different from that of Radiohead's Philip Selway. It's light and unassertive, often sounding like he's tapping the drums as opposed to hitting them, yet at the same time, rhythmic, versatile, and often refreshing. Sons of Kemet fans will most likely delight in hearing Skinner's familiar percussion merge with York and Greenwood's songwriting sensibilities like the combining of chocolate and peanut butter. As a whole, a light for attracting attention has a nice ebb and flow to it, largely trading off between spacey, ambient tracks and structured, melodic ones. It really does underline the importance of album composition as part of the creative process. It's one thing to throw a bunch of good songs onto a disc, but arranging them in a way that enhances both themselves and the songs surrounding them is a separate art altogether. I think I enjoyed hearing all the pre-release singles within the context of the album more so than I did as standalones ahead of time. In other words, this is indeed a classic example of the cohesive body album type I just outlined in my Wilco review. Ultimately, A Light for Attracting Attention is no more accessible than the last two Radiohead albums and likely won't court much favor from the band's detractors, and I'm not sure it does quite enough to justify The Smile as a unique and independent entity, but it functions as a solid successor to 2016's A Moon-Shaped Pool and still has the capacity to surprise even the most obsessive scholars of one Thomas York. Alright, next I'm going to play one of the album's most straightforward tracks. I'd describe this one as a mixture of The Cure and In Rainbows-era Radiohead. The song, as I'm sure you'd have no trouble figuring out on your own, is called We Don't Know What Tomorrow Brings. Enjoy! Enjoy!
2: This is Silver Sprocket,
0: host of Something Else, live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on KBGA Missoula 89.9 FM.
2: I feature avant garde electroacoustic, free jazz, and more creative music every week. You'll get to hear advanced new releases straight from the artists and record labels before anybody else and extensive interviews with the artists themselves. How about you give Something Else a try? Live every Wednesday from 8 to 10 p.m. on KBGA Missoula 89.9 FM and streaming at kbga.org
3: One on the south I'm the but it's always Look out the window and there's nothing to but a on city, the death of your country. the Back to the corner store To the corner store I don't want to be drinking Nothing more Drinking nothing So I'm a super metal liquid Serve your pride Before you go inside Now you're chilling no possessions are the phone. possession of the car You got it from him. You're the next in line.
1: Afro man. Hey, this is Bass Nectar. We're the Dodgy Mountain Man. The Hood Internet. Hey, this is Michael Frantz. This is Duda from Infected Mushrooms, And we are from the band Up. You're listening to KBGA, Missoula.
0: patrol off their 1990 album painkiller the rock and roll hall of fame class of 2022 was announced last month and as far as 90s representation is concerned it's kind of disappointing this year's inductees are eurythmics dolly parton eminem lionel richie duran duran carly simon and pat benatar 90s acts Rage Against the Machine, Beck, and A Tribe Called Quest were all snubbed, with the former receiving their fourth snub to date since attaining eligibility in 2017. And as for Judas Priest, who are really more of a 70s and 80s band, but still released one of their most iconic albums, Painkiller in the 90s, well, they're getting in, but with an asterisk next to their name. Priests have been bestowed with a Musical Excellence Award, so they'll finally have a presence in the Rock Hall by the end of this year, but since they're not being inducted in the traditional sense as performers, they won't be getting their own exhibit next door to the Metallica and Black Sabbath ones. In terms of analyzing to what degree of an honor this is, or isn't, it's important to understand the meaning behind the Musical Excellence Award, how the recipients of awards and inductions are decided, and who decides on them. And after doing my own research into the machinations behind the Rock Hall following this year's class announcement, I possess a clearer understanding of them than I've ever had before and am more than willing to share, so strap yourselves in, folks. For starters, the Musical Excellence Award is one of three types of awards routinely handed out by the Rock Hall outside of the annual class of inductees. The other two, in case you're curious, are the Early Influence Award and the Ahmet Ertugun Award for Lifetime Achievement, which is mainly intended for non-performers in the rock industry and was posthumously named after Rock Hall co-founder Ahmet Ertugun following his death in 2007. Meanwhile, the Musical Excellence Award is defined by a Rock Hall press release as given to artists, musicians, songwriters, and producers whose originality and influence creating music have had a dramatic impact on music. A vague and all encompassing definition for sure, but it was originally called the Sideman Award when it was first introduced in 2000 and has historically been awarded almost exclusively to individuals as opposed to bands. Furthermore, Rock Hall Foundation Chief Joel Parisman once said of it, This award gives us flexibility to dive into some things and recognize some people who might not ordinarily get recognized. So on paper, giving Judas Priest an award originally designated for Sidemen after having already nominated and rejected them multiple times as performers seems like a backhand and a convenient way for the Rock Hall to skirt around giving them a proper induction. But there's a bit more to it than that, and this is where the people who decide on the winners come in. There are actually two separate committees that determine who the Rock Hall honors, a nominating committee and a voting committee, and much like how the Oscars are decided on by insiders of the film industry, Rock Hall honors are deliberated over by folks in the music biz. The nominating committee, naturally, comes up with the list of 20 or so class nominees each year for the voting committee to choose from. This committee tends to fluctuate in size, but typically has between 30 and 40 members, and a full list of membership for said committee is publicly available online. When perusing the list myself, I recognized very few names, but a couple of big ones stood out to me. Dave Grohl and Tom Morell have both been on the nominating committee for several years now, which might explain how Rage Against the Machine keeps appearing on the ballot. The Voting Committee, on the other hand, is comprised of roughly 500 members, and while there's no complete list of membership for that committee online, a partial list can still be found. Once again, there were a lot of names on that list I didn't recognize, but at the same time, at least as many that I did. Notable members of the voting body include, but aren't limited to, Ozzy Osbourne, Angus Young, Eric Clapton, David Lee Roth, Joan Jett, Iggy Pop, Chuck D, Jeff Beck, Grohl and Morello again, and virtually all members of the Rolling Stones, Metallica, Kiss, Pearl Jam, Guns N' Roses, Led Zeppelin, Green Day, Rush, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and, oh, Judas Priest. Which makes me wonder, with so many ambassadors of hard rock and heavy metal on the voting committee, how in the hell does Judas Priest, and for that matter metal at large, keep getting the shaft? At any rate, The voting committee is solely responsible for picking each year's class of inductees from the lists provided by the nominating committee. They do not determine the recipients of any of the other awards. Those are in fact decided on by the nominating committee, and they often use the Musical Excellence Award to pick up the slack in instances where the voting committee dropped the ball. For instance, Sheik frontman Nile Rogers received the award after Sheik was rejected for the 11th time in 2017, and LL Cool J won it last year after failing to get in for the 6th time. From what I've gathered, the motivation behind Judas Priest's award was in the same vein. An unnamed member of the nominating committee allegedly told Brian Ives of Detroit's Beasley Media Group, who happens to be a voter, that although there are admittedly few metal fans on the nominating committee, all of its members recognize the significance of Judas Priest. With that context, Judas Priest receiving a Musical Excellence Award is less of a backhand than it is an apology and tacit admission from the nominating committee that the voting committee done puffed up. So, to any members of the Rock Hall Nominating Committee who may hear this, your gesture of goodwill is appreciated and has not gone unnoticed by at least myself and the members of Judas Priest, who have largely expressed gratitude for it in the press, but this does not mean you're off the hook for your role in securing Priest a long overdue proper induction. Please continue putting forth their name for consideration, and give the voting body as many chances as it takes for them to finally get it right. Anyway, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 2022 induction ceremony will be held on November 5th in Los Angeles and streamed on HBO Max. And Judas Priest will be on hand, with former guitarist K.K. Downing in tow, no less, to accept their award and perform. Before Priest, I play Change the World by The Offspring, off their 1997 album *Ix on the Hombre. Come Bite the Apple by Mother Lovebone off their 1990 album Apple. What I Always Wanted by Kitty off their 2001 album Oracle, The Next in Line by Swingin' Utters off their 1996 album A Juvenile Product of the Working Class, and Mouth Breather by The Jesus Lizard off their 1991 album Goat. And that about wraps up a paternal edition of Sounds Like Teen Spirit on 89.9 KBGA Missoula. I've been your host, Ian. I'm closing out this episode with a second song off the new Wilco double album, Cruel Country. This one was among the tracks that stood out to me the most during my initial spin of the album. It sounded almost familiar to me. I wonder if that's because I heard Wilco play the song during their August 2021 show at Kettle House Amphitheater. There's evidence the song had been written by that point anyway, so could be. This last song is simply titled, Hints. Farewell, And happy Father's Day to all the rockin' dads out there, including my own, Mike!
4: Do you remember when we would forget When we were, I guess, an empty continent We stretched our necks to hear Below the decks But our fears were never real enough So we would just project There is no middle when the other side We'd rather kill than compromise There is no middle when the other side We'd rather kill than compromise Just your eyes to the light And let them roll with pride Focus your mind on Rounding ridges in our fingerprints I love to bid to see a soul power And ever since, heaven sends Sacraments and subtle hints There is no middle on the other side We'd rather kill than compromise There's no middle and the other side We'd rather kill than compromise Adjust your eyes to the light And let them roll This will never